0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. I haven't met you yet. My name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be with you all. And if you haven't been aware of what we've been doing the last few weeks, we've been taking a break from our usual, you know, study in a book of the Bible and concentrating on some important topics. Um, Last week we discussed, we looked at baptism and this week we are looking at communion and we, that, that order was intentional because in those sacraments, baptism should come before communion. You should be baptized before you receive communion. And we are going to be receiving communion at the end of the service, so if you didn't grab the elements on the way in, you can get them in the tables in the back to help prepare for that. Well, to start off with, let's do a bit of an imagination experiment. Let's imagine our church stopped celebrating communion. We don't say anything about it. The pastors don't announce anything. As far as you know, it just stops. And we gather each Sunday to sing and pray and hear God's word. We keep meeting in small groups. We keep ministering to the next generation. We keep scattering to live all of our lives, all for Jesus, all by his grace. But we just don't take communion. It doesn't happen. How long do you think it would take you to notice? What difference would it make in your life? What difference would it make in the life of our church? Would you miss it? Now, every good experiment needs a control sample. So imagine what would happen if our church stopped singing. Again, no announcement is made. Next Sunday, the Bible's read, it's preached, we pray, and we fellowship. But there's just no music, no bands, no singing time, no lyrics on the screen. Same questions how long do you think it would take you before you noticed what difference would it make to your life what difference would it make to the life of our church would you miss it my hunch is that in this scenario people would surround the pastors after the service and demand an explanation even even respectfully so they might point to colossians 316 which says that we should sing to one another and to god but Threats might be made. But what about with the communion scenario? I fear that many Christians could skip it without missing it very much, perhaps without even noticing. This has, has not always been the case. It actually makes us some odd ducks in church history. Bible scholar Robert Latham compares us to just 400 years ago this way. He says, Nothing presents a starker contrast between our own day and the Reformation than the current neglect of the Lord's Supper. Today, communion hardly features a matter of significance, it is seen as an optional extra. Is communion an extra for you? Why do you think? Maybe because communion has become dangerous grounds? My family and I were in Europe this summer, and when we were, we visited places where Christians had been tortured, hung, drowned, burned alive. While disagreements about the nature of the Bible and the nature of grace were the leading contenders for the bloody conflicts, the sacraments were a closed third. Hordes of people were persecuted, even Executed because of what they believed about the Lord's Supper. Are we just sick of fighting about it? Are we just tired of fighting about it? Maybe. Or maybe it's because we modern people have so elevated the mind and reason as the ultimate basis for reality that we're just not sure what to do with something so ordinary and, and simple, some physical substance. Maybe we're embarrassed of something so earthy what's the value of these these physical acts why why bread and wine why not just thoughts and words tim chester whom i borrowed this opening experiment from provocatively asked this he says wouldn't we be happier if jesus had just told us say this in remembrance of me or think this in remembrance of me instead of Handing us bread and a cup and telling us, do this in remembrance of me. Would we be happier? Now, to be clear, we shouldn't be spilling blood over it. But what if we've made a tragic overcorrection so that we value communion so little that we'd hardly notice if it went missing? Church, whatever the reasons are, when we fail to appreciate communion, we drift away from... Our Christian roots we drift away from a truly God enchanted world and more we forsake a gift of God's grace that he gives to us to help us on our journey what if the gospel of Jesus is something beyond our reason something seemingly too good to be true too good for weak people like you and me to actually believe until the end without any aid so, Jesus doesn't just make good promises, he gives us visible confirmation of his good promises. That's the gift of communion. Jesus confirms his promises through a visible meal with his people. Jesus confirms his promises through a visible meal with his people. I think that's what we're going to see in our text today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. And so would you read with me? This is, this is God's word. But, if, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in parts. For there must be fra- factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. Church, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Well, I think this text shows us many things, but one of the things is that Jesus confirms his promises through a visible meal with his people. Through bread and the cup, he confirms three things specifically. He confirms our forgiveness, he confirms our family, and he confirms our future. He confirms our forgiveness, he confirms our family, and he confirms our future. So first, let's look at how this meal confirms our forgiveness. Let's start in the middle of the passage I just read with, with verses 23 through 26. One commentator said that these verses are like a diamond dropped in a muddy road. One of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible is dropped into this ugly, selfish mess God's people are making of communion. The whole section I just read is a rebuke. A rebuke of this church. And Paul uses a precious description of communion to rebuke them who have been perverting it. But let's look at this diamond before we look at the muddy road it's dropped on. Jesus says this he says, for I re, or Paul says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, That's the diamond. This beautiful passage is, is all taking place on the night before Jesus was tortured and was crucified. His last supper with his disciples before he was tortured and crucified, was the Passover meal. The meal Jews were commanded to share together to commemorate God rescuing them, delivering them out of out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They, they ate a lamb and drank wine to reenact and remember the Passover lamb that was slain and, and its blood that was spread all over the doorposts and lentils so that they wouldn 't die, and this sort of catapulted them out of bondage. But now, in this moment, Jesus takes a fifteen hundred year old tradition and completely transforms it, or really he, he fulfills it because this meal is what the Passover had always been pointing to an even greater sacrifice for an even for an even greater deliverance Jesus' own body would be broken, and his own blood would be shed. Why does Jesus give himself? If we turn a couple chapters in 1 Corinthians, it's very clear. Jesus died for our sins. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says. Jesus died for our sins. He died to deliver his people, not from Egypt, but from sin. To, not from slavery, but from he brought, was bringing them from, from death to life to forgive them and make them his people for good. And Jesus wasn't doing something New here. He wasn't doing a new thing. He was fulfilling an old thing. And listen to the promise in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So God's been after a people. He was after a people, but they could only be his people if they were a forgiven people. And the only way to justly forgive his people was for God himself to bear the wrath they deserved. For Jesus, the perfect God-man, to stand condemned in their place to die for their sins. Scripture had been pointing to this great exchange throughout, ever since the Garden it had been pointing to this great exchange happening one day. About 700 years before this meal, the prophet Isaiah wrote this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus is saying here, this is finally happening. Now with me, I'm the fulfillment of these promises. I'm the lamb of God. I'm the solution to your greatest problem. I, I've promised forgiveness and now I'm going to spill my blood and die on a cross for your sins to purchase your forgiveness once and for all. So if you dr- trust me and my blood work for you, my, my, the work of my blood, you're not halfway forgiven if only you become a little better and, and come the other half. You're forgiven all the way, thoroughly and wholly. So, so, so moving forward, don't forget it. Don't let this slip. Don't fumble this reality. Do this in remembrance of me. Eat this bread and drink this cup to reenact my work for you and remember this promise. It's done. It's done. Remember it. It's done. And as we do this physical act of eating and drinking, we're to do the mental act of remembering. This meal isn't magical. It doesn't nourish us apart from faith. It's not like medicine, which works whether you believe it will work or not. And those last two sentences I just said, or what we're getting Christians killed 400 years ago. Just a side note. This isn't magical, not like medicine that works whether you believe it works or not. Remembering is key. Remembering is key to the nourishment it gives. Not getting in touch with our inner self, not mysticism, not dreaming or imagining or mindfulness or going into neutral. Remembering. Remembering is is rooted in a past event. John Piper puts it this way. He says, The Lord's Supper roots us time after time in the nitty-gritty of history, bread and cup, body and blood, execution and death. It's more than just recalling the event or agreeing that it happened. It's recapturing its reality and its significance. To remember Jesus and his cross is to relive his life, his agony, his death with him. Receiving the, the bread and the cup in that way makes us freshly aware of the forgive, forgiveness Jesus purchased and we've already, we've already received. And so you might ask, if we've already received forgiveness, why, why do we need to do this? It doesn't add anything, does it? No. No. It doesn't add anything. It confirms it. It confirms it. And we need confirmation. Tangible confirmation. One author explains it this way. He says, The promise of God in Christ Jesus is of such extraordinary magnitude that it seems almost impossible that it also applies to someone like me. Therefore, the Lord by means of his supper, stamps the seal of confirmation upon this promise. God, so to speak, places the ring of spiritual betrothal on our finger. Church, the gospel is great news, and the Lord's Supper doesn't add anything to it. It just preaches the same great news to us in a different way, in a visible, tangible way. This is truth we can touch. It's like a wedding ring. It's like a wedding ring. A wedding ring doesn't make us married. Your wedding ring, if you're married, didn't make you married. It confirms we are married. And when do we need a wedding ring the most? When things are easy or when things are hard? When we feel in love and we feel committed or when we don't? When we feel worthy of our spouse, or when we're not. This bread and this cup are like a wedding ring because today you may feel forgiven. You may feel cleansed, like a new person who's loved by God. But what about tomorrow? What what happens on the day when you sin remarkably, spectacularly? How will you feel then? Will you feel forgiven? This is some of us today. You've sinned and and you don't feel forgiven. You don't feel loved by God. but, But our feelings are too shaky to base our hope on. Hope won't survive on our subjective feelings. Our hope is based on God's promise of forgiveness. Bought with an objective historical act. And yet, we're forgetful people. We're weak people who struggle with assurance. So Jesus gives us objective Visible assurance to confirm the objective, invisible reality. Lick Duncan says this He says, God, in His kindness, knowing how frail we are, knowing how battered by life we can be, has also given us His promise in bread and wine. Every communion is an embodiment of God's grace. We hear God's grace in the words that are spoken, but it's confirmed to us with touch, taste, sound, and sight. Marriage marriage highlights the importance of visible confirmation even more than the wedding ring. If you tell your spouse, I love you, you give a meaningful assurance of your love. But if you have a flourishing marriage, you probably do more than that. You probably kiss, you hug, you have sex. The verbal assertion of your love takes a physical form, and spouses don't think the physical expression is redundant. Kissing and hugging and and being one flesh don't add content. We love each other, and we're committed to each other without it, but they confirm content. They bathe you and nourish you in the content. Church, we know we need forgiveness, and we know Jesus died for our sins, but each of us are sinners. We struggle with sin, and we don't always feel forgiven. We ache for assurance that the promise of forgiveness applies to me. After that, is this you this morning? Are you more aware of your sin than God's grace? Is this you? You you long to know his grace really, 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 truly is for you? After that, Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. The the bread and the cup they're, they're grace-based assurance. Our our feelings can't assure us especially over the long haul. Just like something inside of us can't forgive us. Something inside of us can't confirm that we're forgiven. Something outside of you must take place to forgive you and something outside of you must confirm you're forgiven. And if you think about it, if you think about it, nothing can do that better than a meal. In one way, you could say the entire Bible is about a meal. Think about it. The first thing God does with Adam and Eve when he puts them in the garden is he invites them to an abundant feast with a hunger-satisfying, pleasure-giving menu. And what do we do? we rebelled. We said we want a different menu. We want an alternative menu. We rejected him, but God didn't reject us. He didn't reject us. He promised he'd restore this relationship we broke. And the Old Testament is littered with meals that picture and foreshadow restored fellowship. The Passover meal. The manna in the wilderness saying, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm your God. The meal with Moses and the 70 elders on top of Mount Sinai to confirm the covenant. The Instructions for the tabernacle and temple had a table overlaid with gold where fresh-baked bread was placed, the bread of presence. The bread of presence looked back at what was lost at Eden and looked forward to the promise of a renewal of the meal together, God and man. And along the way, prophets promised a future meal, a feast with Rich food and well-aged wine for all peoples. And this meal was corresponding to a time when there would be no more sin, death, suffering. The kingdom would be here. And then Jesus shows up. He feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. And he says, I'm the real manna from heaven. I'm the bread of life. And, and do you remember the party he threw at Matthew's house? Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. And it was by eating and drinking with them that he showed them in the most tangible way possible that God welcomes his enemies. And he does the same with us. The, the true Passover has happened. Jesus died in our place. So now at every communion meal, Jesus welcomes us to his table. He invites sinners to be his Friends, you and I are invited to slide our knees underneath the table of God. Jesus is the host. We belong to him. And if you do, eat and drink, reassured that his promise applies to you. In, in this meal, Jesus confirms our forgiveness. And with it, amazing grace, restored fellowship with, with, with him. But, that's, but that, that's not the only thing that... Jesus confirms with communion. In Jeremiah, God promised, I will be their, my, their God and they will be my people. He promised even more than forgiveness. He promised a family. And in this visible meal, Jesus confirms our family. So back to that muddy road in Corinth that we read about. Remember, a big reason Paul writes this letter to this church is to correct problems. And in this section, he's rebuking them for the way they're pursuing communion. They're perverting it, and they're perverting it so bad, the perversion so bad that in verse 20, Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The meal is so abused, it's been so mispurposed, that it's unrecognizable. What what was the perversion? What was so bad about their practice of communion? Let's look again, at uh, starting in verse 18. Look, Look at that with me. It says, when you... Come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, or there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for, this is the reason, because, for, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God, and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This is strong, unpleasant language. It's a serious response to a serious perversion. What's the perversion? Division. Factions. Selfishness. At that time, the church gathered in homes, and it seems like they would have a supper and then they'd add communion to that meal. But instead of doing this together, they'd gather in sort of class cliques before communion. And the rich wouldn't wait for the poor. We really don't know what this means. Maybe the, the rich weren't waiting for the poor to get off. Some of them were slaves. Maybe some of them had long, longer jobs. They just weren't waiting for them. They said, well, let's go ahead. Everybody's here that needs to be here. Or, or maybe they were gathering in different rooms. They were separating by class, and the, the rich would have sort of like a first-class, all-you-can-eat buffet, and the poor would be left to their scarce menus, and they would go away hungry. There was a great divide between the haves and the have-nots, and their gathering was just amplifying the divide. The, the church looked more like, a fam- uh, uh, more like an airplane than a family. There's a big difference oftentimes between first-class passengers and Coach passengers. And it's one thing on an airplane, it's a a very different thing in a church family. Paul says, I have no praise for you because their versions of the Lord's Supper were actually doing more harm than good. They couldn't even call it the Lord's Supper because with the gospel, with the gospel, there are no haves and have nots, there are only haves. If we have Christ, we're halves. We have Jesus. We don't lose all our distinctions when we have Jesus. We're still rich or poor, male or female, young or old, black or white. But our differences aren't what characterize us. Characterize us. What characterizes us is Christ. We're his. We're his family. And communion is meant to confirm this reality. We are one. This is more clear if we flip back a chapter 2. It says this. Paul's writing the same letter. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Church, if we're forgiven all, then we're all family. When we take the bread and the cup, that's what we're proclaiming. We're saying, if we're forgiven all by Jesus... Then we're all the family of Jesus. If we're forgiven all by Jesus, then we're all the family of Jesus. When we take the bread, we experience, in the the cup, we experience a sharing in his body and blood. You could say we experience a partnership in his death, a oneness and a partnership like no other. But isn't that so much easier to say than it is to experience? How difficult was this to believe during the pandemic with different opinions on masks and vaccines? How how difficult is this to experience when we scroll fellow Christians' social media during a political season, an election season? Or when there's a massive tragedy or injustice that's been politicized? How, How challenging is this to feel when we're relating to brothers or sisters from different races or Backgrounds when, when we go to each other's houses and we eat different food and navigate different cultural norms or languages. How challenging is it for rich and poor to feel like they're one, like they belong together on the airplane, in the restaurant or in the hotel or in each other's neighborhoods? And so Jesus gives us bread and a cup, a visible meal to confirm our family. When we take it, Together, we're not only remembering our communion with him, but our communion with one another. We're we're, we're all invited to commune with the king. He's spiritually present in this bread and the cup in a special way. And thus, our communion with him spills over into communion with one another, his body. We're partaking in Jesus and his work. We're sharing his very presence. He himself is hosting the communion meal. And he's present at the meal in a special way. James K. Smith points this out. He says, there's a social, even a political reality enacted here. There are no box seats at this table. The Lord's table is a leveling reality in a world of increasing inequalities. An enacted vision of Isaiah 25.6. A feast of rich food for all people. A banquet of aged wine. This strange feast is the civic rite of another city. The heavenly city. The Lord's Supper isn't just a way to remember something that was accomplished in the past. It's a feast that nourishes our hearts now, here in an, existent, is an existential meal that retrains our deepest, most human hungers. Listen, this visible meal confirms right now in the present that we're part of a fundamentally different political system than we get on the major news channels of our day. We, we have a different citizenship. This is like our, the supper It's like our pledge of allegiance. You might ask, well, why confirm that with a meal? Well, again, there's nothing quite like a meal that confer, can confirm a family, big or small. Like the Passover meal did for Israel, this bread and this cup don't only tell the next generation what God has done, but also who we are. Jesus lived and died for us to forgive us and to make us his family. Red, yellow, black, or white, all are precious in his sight. We share him. We're his together. This bread and this cup are an identity-shaping, community-forming meal. You could say, since we have a different citizenship, this is our national dish. It doesn't just gather community. It creates community. It confirms our family. And so here are a few points of application. As a church, we're going to double down on this gift. Moving forward, we're going to pursue a more regular practice of receiving communion together on Sunday mornings. During the last presidential election, we went through a sermon series called God and Politics. And because the The vision was so great in our country, we took communion together weekly. And it was a rich time to remember, to be nourished in the truth that he, Jesus, is our king and we're his. We belong to him and we belong to one another. We're one. And so we don't want to wait for the next election season or big injustice on the news. We want to be confirmed in this more often. So please joyfully anticipate us receiving communion together more regularly. From this Sunday on. And as we do, here's another application. And from, straight from the text. It says, come to the table in a worthy manner. I'm going to read this again. Listen to verse 27. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is sobering. Communion isn't trivial. It's not a game. It's not light. It's not a lighter, casual thing. So the application is don't come in an unworthy manner. Now listen, this doesn't mean you don't come as a sinner. The gospel is that God saves sinners. Jesus died for sinners to forgive us. The gospel meal is not earned. It's grace. Grace for sinners. So you don't need to clean yourself up before you come to the meal. But still, there's some ways that we can come in an unworthy manner. You can come with lack of faith. You can come with unconfessed sin. You can come thinking this is a game, trivial. But I, I think the main thing in mind here is discerning the body. Our text says that when we come to this table, we must discern the body. And there's, there's different opinions on what that means. I think this means that we, when we come to the table, we come saying, we're forgiven all by Jesus and with equal force. That means we all are the family of Jesus. We're forgiven all by Jesus and therefore we are all the family of Jesus. One author puts the importance of this connection this way. He says, The two bodies, the body of Christ given for them on the cross and in the bread, and the body of Christ created by fellowship in him, cannot be separated. The Corinthians' attempt to make such a separation was the real desecration of the meal. The supper binds the participants with Christ and with each other into a singular body. So discern the body means not separating what's bound together. Forgiveness and family. Communion with Jesus and communion together with one another, our brothers and sisters. Don't separate it. And Practically, I think this means not receiving communion with a a spirit of bitterness, hatred, or pride toward another believer. Don't come with anger and division and strife with a brother or sister. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers, if you're offering a your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Coming in a worthy manner means paying attention to your relationships with God's people. Take care of them. Discern the body. We're one. We're one. So communion causes us to regularly pause, examine ourselves, and pursue oneness and reconciliation with our church family as much as it depends on me. James K. Smith points out that this is part of the power and purpose of communion. He says, Marshaling the mundane and universal human practice of eating and thus also taking up the communion connect, the common connection between food and fellowship, the table of the Lord is a catalyst for reconciliation. In a broken, fragmented world, the church is called to be the first fruits of a new creation by embodying a reconciled community. And the way we begin to learn that is at the communion table. Okay, did you hear that? When, we take, when taken correctly, communion is a catalyst for reconciliation. Here Jesus confirms our family and teaches us how to be a family. We're the first fruits of his reconciled community. So let's, let's pursue each other. Let's welcome one another. And when we share this meal, let's do it together. But before, before we receive communion together, we need to touch on at least one more promise that Jesus confirms with this meal. Jesus also confirms our future. This one will be shorter, I promise. Just one verse here. Okay, verse 26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In Matthew's account of the Lord's Supper, uh, he has Jesus saying this, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit, Of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So, church, this meal doesn't just look at what Christ accomplished for us in the past, and it does more than just confirm our present reality as being one family. It's a preview of our future. Listen to what else Jesus promised to his disciples on that very night at that very meal in this very same room. He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Communion is a preview of this future. Our dying Savior didn't stay dead. He's resurrected and seated on high as King of the universe, reigning over Everything and he says he's preparing a place for us and will return to get us. So why do we remember that? Why do we proclaim that with bread and a cup? Because it's a foretaste of our future. What what are we going to do with Jesus when he returns? Feasting, feasting. He will return and he will drink new wine with us. Communion's a reminder. It's a sample. It's a foretaste of the feast of feasts. We all. Long for. While the bread and the cup do confirm that God's already uh, fulfilled this, He's fulfilled all His promises to restore Eden through Jesus, it also confirms to us that it hasn't happened all the way yet. We're still waiting for a future fulfillment. Jesus is preparing a place for you and me, and He will return for us. Friends, if you trust this reality that the bread and the cup point to, your future is an unending feast of pure joy. We're going to be his, and he's going to be ours forever and ever. And this changes everything here in this phase of the story. We're all suffering, or we will be, even for a long time, but not for all time. Communion points us to a better Ending. Your deep suffering has an expiration date. Jesus is coming back. All the sad things will become untrue. Our bad will be turned for our good. We won't lose anything good here. The best is yet to come, and this is certain for Jesus' people. Communion is a declaration of this reality. It's something we do. When we take it, we proclaim it. We don't name it and proclaim it, we take it and we proclaim it. King Jesus reigns and he's returning. But communion is something he does for us. This bread and this cup are his pledge to us that these things are true. As we end here, think think of a a contract, like an employment, employment contract or closing documents on a house. It's a piece of paper with specific written commitments. A signature at the bottom doesn't add any content. What's it do? It confirms it. It gives us greater confidence. We can point to it. The gospel, too, contains promises communicated in words. The bread and the wine are like the signature of Jesus at the bottom of the contract. His gospel promises are signed and sealed with bread and the cup. In preaching the gospel, we get promises of forgiveness of a family Of a future we can hear, but the bread and the cup are his promises that we can see, that we can touch and taste. This is visible confirmation of all Jesus' promises for us, as people. So as we prepare to sing, as we prepare to take it, let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.